Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John spoke with Nora Bustani, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and lecturer in journalism at the American University of Beirut, about the parallels between Lebanon's current crises and those of its past. Then, John, Natasha, and I discussed the impact of sectarianism on life in Lebanon throughout its history. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Our guest today is Nora Bostani. She worked for decades as a writer for the Washington Post. She is back home in Beirut. Nora Bostani, welcome to Babel. Thank you. It's a pleasure so, to be with you, John. So the first question is, how are you? Were you affected by the blast? How, how is your apartment? How's your health, your friends and family? I'm fine. Our apartment was very marginally affected. And we felt an earthquake and... Uh, then there was this huge blast and I rushed out to the balcony and saw this, this huge column of smoke, you know, below into white and black and orange, red and crimson. And we didn't really know what was going on. But I don't know of one friend or one cousin or relative on the other side whose house has not been almost totally gutted. It's been really, really bad. I mean, not only glass and and door frames, but furniture and kitchen appliances and walls. It really was horrific. And this comes on top of what has been a complete meltdown in the Lebanese economy over six months. You know, somebody sent me an article you wrote about Lebanon's crisis about how the economy was melting down. People could make ends meet. But it was from 1987. Everyone's been sending me this story. It's almost a replay, except, you know, in the middle of the war, we had more hope. We had more stamina to face adversity. This country has been through so much. And the last 10 months have been such a roller coaster from the whole country suddenly realizing we've been had. We've been led by crooks who have consistently institutionalized, organized theft, you know, mafiosi tactics that have ruled our lives. And Lebanon, I think, largely exists through private initiative. Had it not been for that, I don't know how the Lebanese would have coped. Still, the last 10 months have been very, very difficult. Closures, large-scale demonstrations, covid that we had like a four or five months really severe shutdown, which affected the economy even more. We have a banking system that has taken 70% of our savings in dollars and invested it in toxic debts. And economically, the country is really hurting. And then on top of that, you had that explosion that kind of knocked the wind out of our lungs. It was too horrific of a blow. Does that plant the seeds then for a coalition among different Lebanese who say, we are all together, it is the political class that is preying on us? Does all of this add up to that? Why or why not? That momentum has already started. It started with the October 17 uprising. 
we need to update the Taif Accords, which ended the war back in 1989. We need a secular state. You even have people like Nabih Birri and Walid Jumblat, who have never uttered these words, now say we need a secular system of governance. And of course, Lebanese look around the region and they remember the enthusiasm that other places had for the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings, uh, the sense in, in places like Egypt and elsewhere that the system would change. And the system fell and then regenerated itself, some argue even more vigorously than before. How does Lebanon capture this moment? If, if indeed there is a popular desire to change, how do you change the system in a durable way yeah. given the crises that are also going on right now? To answer this question, I have to go a little back in time. You know, at the end of 89, we were so punch drunk from war and fighting and street battles that the Lebanese were willing to accept anything. Uh, and at Ta'if, the warlords, along with the kind of octogenarian parliament, everyone was paid off to stop the war. And we start, and there was a general amnesty, and we started, so to speak, the end of the war uh, by laying the seeds for what we have now, a corrupt elite that was almost rewarded for the role that it had. Instead of being held accountable and scrutinized, they were given positions of power and they became wealthy. And, you know, when you get away with murder once, you get away with other crimes, like, as I said, consistent, organized, institutionalized theft. Now, during the October uprising, people finally, it dawned on people, it hit them between the eyes, you know, whether Sunnis, Manishia, Christians, Druze, that, okay, these leaders we have had have been throwing sand into our eyes. This is new. Is there a danger, as somebody who lived through Lebanon's civil war, that, that this may descend into another civil war? We hope not, but there is always a fear. You know, there, there were many layers. You talked about the Arab Spring. You know, we thought wrongly that we had our Arab Spring in 2005 when we kicked out the Syrians after the assassination of Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. Maybe we, we won that by, by getting them physically out of Lebanon. There have been so many layers that have kind of fed the financial oppression of what uh, an economist I know, a banker I know, calls the sectarian banking political complex. So no one is going to put up with what we have today. The big question is whether Hezbollah, which looms large right now with most, if not all, of the Shiite community, whether they're willing to kind of go along with necessary reforms that are imperative for lifting Lebanon out of its mess. Right now, we are totally at the bottom of the pit. I mean, we are on our knees. But speaking to some of my knowledgeable Shiite friends who really can read what's going on in the community, Nasrallah has never faced as much challenges and opposition within his own ranks and people as he has in the last few weeks. Still, he has an arsenal that nobody can match. The Shiite community is about 37%. It's the largest single sect. And what has made them even stronger 
in parliament has been the Christian cover that President Aoun's party and that of his son-in-law have given them. They have come down on the side. All that is in flux at the moment. You talked about Hezbollah. You talked about Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, who was killed. And, and we just had the, the special tribunal for Lebanon release a verdict, which after 15 years seemed not to find much of anything. Is that surprising? Does that help Lebanon by not highlighting the Hezbollah role in his assassination? Or does it hurt Lebanon by reviving the ghosts? It's a two-edged sword. I think it's a beginning of bringing justice through an independent international platform, which is the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Now, they did indict and pass judgment on Salim Ayash, who is a Hezbollah member. Now, the person above him, who was the, the commander who replaced Imad Mughniya as the supreme military chief of Hezbollah forces, Mustafa Badreddin, was killed in very murky circumstances in Syria a while ago. And the judgment by the STL does three things. First of all, it accuses someone after a very lengthy and costly judicial process, it did not come out swinging against the Hezbollah leadership or Syria's, although everyone knows that they are implicated. But what it has done in a positive way, I think, prove to the very critical eyes of the Shia community and Hezbollah specifically is that this is a highly professional independent judicial process that is not funded or manipulated by U.S. and Israeli interests or Western interests. And if you are a Sunni, you are, people are very disappointed. They thought that this should have gone much, much further after 15 years and close to $800 million, like $60 million a year the Lebanese government has been paying. So you mentioned the international community, you mentioned the United States. Does Lebanon's current environment create an opportunity for the United States? And what should the U.S. think about its role going forward? How should the United States think about Lebanon, both for its own interests, but also for Lebanese interests? I think there is a role for the U.S. Right now, it has to tread carefully, of course, because people like to suspect it of furthering interests that are not good or beneficial for Lebanon. There's a former U.S. ambassador who told me that the press in Lebanon at the time was up in arms because they were accusing him of doing what the French ambassador actually was doing. What the French ambassador? Yeah, probably. Now, I know the U.S. has its own problems, economic and, you know, with the pandemic and the election. You have academic institutions. The first thing the French did long before this explosion was come in and say, we are going to help 50 schools that are threatened with closure. You know, there is soft American power. We have seen the American role kind of take a back seat. I'm not saying it should come in and, you know, hoist the American flag on, on every street corner, but there are so many things that are required, you know. There are a lot of social initiatives that are happening between people in Europe and the U.S. and their Lebanese counterparts beyond the government. 
And that has heartened the Lebanese. And I think it provides an opening for a slow, careful, considered, well thought out way back into Lebanon. The American role should not be one of coming on one side, you know, like the phalangists or the, uh, you know, any kind of assistance now is welcome as long as it's not done with one faction in mind, but the kind of the middle classes. 55% of the Lebanese population is now under the poverty level, according to a study released by Esquad. There are so many avenues for America to have a role. You know, Under Secretary of State David Hale was in Beirut. Uh, yes. He came back and said that the U.S. would help Lebanon, but it wouldn't help the Lebanese government until there was really substantial reform. Is there a potential U.S. role facilitating, encouraging, consolidating a shift in the Lebanese government and in the way the system works, as you said, there was a popular demand to do, or would U.S. involvement cripple any movement toward that transition? Should the U.S. seek to accelerate and and facilitate, or should the U.S. wait and see what the results are in your judgment? I, I will tell you where the U.S. can play an amazing role. It should not directly be involved with how, um, how the next government is formed, uh, because that will face a backlash. However, as Lebanon is uh, trying to, or as a new government, I hope, will try to enforce reforms, uh, this should be met with um, uh, open arms. It should be encouraged in global financial institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank, I don't know, other such platforms uh, and forums uh, by being on the side of the Lebanese people. You know, already the World Bank is conducting all kinds of surveys of houses and businesses that were hit, you know, small businesses like little Armenian artisans on Marim Khail Street, the street that was worst hit. So it can do so through international organizations without being visible and without making a target of itself. As the process evolves, you know, I'm assuming that it's going to evolve in a positive way, but of course I have no way of knowing. So let me ask you a final question. Lebanon went through a wrenching civil war for 15 years. Did that experience and the empowerment of warlords after the war create fault lines? in Lebanese society, or did it create a certain resilience that Lebanese have committed never to fall back to civil war and actually strengthened societal cohesion? As as you look at this time of remarkable stress in Lebanese history, not unparalleled, but certainly paralleled at a time of war, do you feel Lebanon is stronger because of its civil war experience or weaker because of its civil war experience? There are many levels to your question. Okay, on one level, the civil war and the way it ended kind of emboldened the culture of impunity among leaders. And we are really fighting against that right now. On an individual level, we who have, those who have lived through it, don't want to ever see it again. And what has come to light right now is that 
even the younger generations who knew very little about the war and learned even less from their parents do not want to be exploited for religious divisions. These kids are very avant-garde in their lifestyle. They want to live together. I, I see it among my students at AUB. You would have someone in shorts and a halter top and flip-flops walking alongside her classmate who's wearing a headscarf. And, you know, they, they hug one another and they study together. And so I think it's given us a sense of who we can be. And for all the horrible fallout from the war, there was stability uh, that was wonderful in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years, in spite of all the assassinations and hiccups. There are hotels, there are restaurants, there are nice beaches, and it's not enough. Now people realize we need more industry. We need to be close to our roots. We need more agriculture. But resilience as a word has become a bad word in Lebanon. We all think that because we wanted to move on and live and enjoy all these avenues of fun, we have allowed these corrupt, rotting individuals, oligarchs, to keep leading us by the nose. So it's a different kind of endurance. We want to live, but we want to redraw the foundations of this country on more egalitarian grounds. And you sense that a lot all over the country. You no longer just have an elite. And now with the, with Ashrafi in ruins and all these beautiful Ottoman French colonial mansions completely wrecked, everyone, there is a sense of cohesion of, of what this neglect and corruption has done to us as a society. And we have to start on a sounder foundation. Nora Bussani, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for thinking of me. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss the impact of sectarianism on life in Lebanon throughout its history. This week, we're delighted to welcome Danny Sharp to our conversation. Danny just joined the program a few months ago as program manager and research associate. He came to us from where he was living in Jordan. He's a former intern in the program. Danny, welcome to the program and welcome to Babel. Thanks, John. Delighted to be here. In a previous episode of Babel, we discussed what the sectarianism in Lebanon that Nora touched on looks like. How does this political sectarianism impact day-to-day life for the population? One of the things that struck me when I've been in Lebanon is that in many ways, when you go from town to town, you can tell exactly what the political orientation and often ethnic origin of the town is. And I remember in particular a drive through the Bekaa Valley and you could tell which the Sunni towns were and which the the pro-Hezbollah towns were and which the pro-Amal towns were. And in some ways you're almost in different countries because the national government is made up of local governments or party governments that have almost absolute control over different municipalities. More tangibly, services such as waste management also tend to be tied to political parties rather than the government. And what that can and has looked like at the municipal level is one party finds a waste management solution, which they then promote and sometimes pay for, as has been the case in places like Bukhaya, 
But then a new party wins an election and the waste management system essentially comes to a stop. Using waste management example further, since this has been a problem for Lebanon, is that in order to have sustainable solutions to things like waste management or electricity, you need to scale up or join forces with other communities in order to produce enough trash, for example, to make that solution possible or sustainable. But in Lebanon, communities, oftentimes, they don't want to cooperate because they don't get along, because they're, you know, uh, from a different sector, from different political parties. Has Lebanese sectarianism notably impacted the political, social, or, or economic development of the country? Does it bear any responsibility for the crises gripping Lebanon today? It's heavily impacted the political, social, and economic development of the country. Without a strong government, people became dependent on the patronage of their zaim or their boss, and this further entrenched their power and sort of inversely weakened, I think, the process of rebuilding the country and the government to make it a more sort of technocratically functional democracy. Ta'af wasn't supposed to end uh, with Ta'af. The confessional system was meant to be phased out, but that just never happened. Ta'af, of course, being the political agreement that ended the Lebanese civil war in 1989. And without that, the politicians sort of investing in the country as a whole, you saw no efforts to create a productive industrial society. And so Lebanon, as a result, relies primarily on imports, has a failing electricity system, which allows generator mafias to make a fortune at the expense of of everyday Lebanese. And in many ways, the price of ending the war in 1989 was empowering the people who made the war, empowering the warlords. And you could argue that the warlords are more powerful in Lebanon now than they were in the middle of the war. And this is precisely what so many Lebanese are, are beginning to rise up about or have been rising up about is this system that rewards people based on identity, not on performance. It's a system that is crippling the country and not taking it toward either security or prosperity. And you see this uh, political elite like President Aoun fighting back against laws that had been put in place to sort of form this meritocracy rather than handing out political offices or government offices based on sectarian identity. Is there a common perspective among the Lebanese people regarding the enduring proliferation of the sectarianism? How have these attitudes shifted since the system first came about? I'm seeing increasing numbers of especially young people saying the sectarian system has to go. It seems to me that the people who are most connected to the sectarian system are people who feel they need to be protected by it. That is people who feel more vulnerable that a lot of the upper middle classes in the cities feel like they don't need it, but more rural populations do. What's happening though is that as the economic crisis worsens, the middle class is being squeezed and you have people who used to consider themselves middle class who now find themselves vulnerable. Yeah, importantly, I mean, you see these inspiring protests in Beirut and last year you actually saw them across the country, which is very notable and important and and a big change in this movement. But these protests in Beirut have sort of little to do with elections. I remember staying with some friends' cousins several years back, and they had, to this day, they were young people, but they had Jaja posters on their walls and, you know, guns in their closets. So I think the most important thing for reformists to remember in general is that not everyone will drop their party. I think many people, like you've mentioned, feel that it's the only thing that will protect them should Lebanon fall apart again.
How might the relative reticence of the United States' response to the explosion impact the prominence of sectarianism in Lebanon? I think the U.S. needs to toe a fine line in Lebanon. It can't be seen as interfering or it will taint anything that the reformists try to achieve, which Nora pointed out. At the same time, it's clear to me that reformers are going to need help taking on this, this entrenched system, as we talked about. The danger is that if things get too desperate, I could easily see Lebanon falling back and the Lebanese falling back into their sects uh, for support and protection. And the Zomer, or the political bosses, have been saving up for such a rainy day. One of the things I thought was interesting was Nora was very reluctant to have the U.S. playing any obvious role in Lebanon's political transition. At the same time, she said the, the political yeah. transition was vital. She also thought that the U.S. could much more easily ruin it than facilitate it. And, and she called for helping multilateral institutions rather than direct assistance. Nora said that the Lebanese people of today don't share the hope or stamina in the face of adversity that was shared at the end of the Civil War. Why might this be? Well, as an Arab American who was had tears coming down my cheeks when I watched the protests in Tahrir Square in Egypt, and then as the democratic, peaceful protests swept through the region, and just to see them come to such a bitter end, I share some of that hopelessness, to be honest. Decades of oppression and corruption and even war crimes has just simply led to more oppression, corruption, and violence with little to no accountability. So I think I understand what she's talking about. feels less hopeful decades on when little has been done to rebuild the country. And frankly, there's more global cynicism. And I, th I think we've seen this spreading in the United States. It's spreading in Lebanon. There is a sense in a lot of places that politics don't serve to advance the national interest. Politics serve to advance the interests of politicians. The fact that you've had a political class that supposedly had worked out the issues in Lebanon and instead enriched itself at the expense of the Lebanese people comes as a difficult observation. And while it's optimistic, it's probably necessary to say the solution to Lebanon's problems has to come through politics, even though people's faith in politics has been battered by the last 30 years of experience. Thank you, John and Natasha, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on Babel, we'll be releasing episode one of our Russia in the Middle East podcast miniseries. That will be released on September 1st. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.